Welcome to the greatest discovery, the new Star Trek podcast from the makers of the greatest generation. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm Ben Harrison. We usually use our, our Marin Opens to just, you know, freestyle, right? Yeah. We don't want any constraints put on our Marins. That's right. They're called Marins. Yeah. But now <laughs> there are constraints for this episode because you had the bright idea about combining a very light review of the latest Star Trek Prodigy episode yeah. and, and shove that up front before what we're all here to see. I'm regarding the viewers at home right now who are here wanting to know what we thought of Star Trek Discovery Season 4, Episode 1. Yeah, I was kind of surprised that you vetoed that idea and you said we are going to give as detailed a review of Prodigy as we are of Discovery and you won't have two ways about it. Well, I think it's interesting, and I know we'll get into this a little more later, how similarly dense... The two episodes were <laughs> yeah. by the time I watched both of them. So much happens in both. Uh, well, we should probably just jump right in because, uh, listen, I've got a heart out. We pushed the record back. We're up against it. Yeah, we are. We got to get this done. So let's get it done. Beginning with Star Trek Prodigy, season one, episode five. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what they call it. <laughs> it's called Terror Firma. The thought I had right up top, Ben, is using two minutes on the theme song really the best use of time in a 23-minute show? <laughs> I mean, it seems like a perfectly good use of time to most other Star Trek shows, right? Like the long opening is kind of a signature element of the franchise. Two minutes is what we're going to give this episode of Star Trek Prodigy before we get into <laughs> Discovery, right? Yeah. We pick up right where we left off, as predicted, and it is the gang marooned on the planet, and Gwen is there. She's borked her ankle. Are you talking to me? No, my son is also named Bork. Is that what you call a compound fracture? <laughs> yeah. Ben? Just a, a light borking? I compare it to a Supreme Court justice that actually didn't get put on mm. for being a conservative lunatic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the episode starts right off with just Dal v. Gwyn getting into it over who is the cause of this situation they're in because mm -hmm. it's dark and the ship is 10 kilometers away and they got to get out there to it if they want to leave the planet that's slowly being overrun by these. And Del V. Gwynn is, is famously a very close Supreme Court decision. It was 5-4 and yeah. it's, uh, you know, it could be overturned the next time somebody gets nominated. I was shocked as they begin walking that Pog's helmet continuity. Uh, yeah, in... Star Trek Prodigy Season 1, Episode 5, Terra Firma. <laughs> I couldn't help but notice that Pog's helmet was used as a soup bowl in the previous episode. And then in the very next episode, he puts that same helmet on. Looks like the glass is crystal clear. He does not mention that it smells of old stew. Are we just supposed to accept that in between the last episode and this, he cleaned his helmet? And like, so the illusion was that it was stew. Was it actually <laughs> stew? Was it mud? Was it 
tentacles that looked like mud to some people and stew to pog, do tentacles clean out easily? Do they have a smell? I'm gonna go get a hot dog. <laughs> get a life. They get radio from Holloway, who is uh, on the ship 10 kilometers away. She's telling them that the ship miraculously survived its second crash landing of its time here on this planet, but they need to start walking or driving uh, is what they would like to do, but the car gets consumed by tentacles pretty quickly. Yeah, we hardly knew the runaway. Yeah, but this ship has a vehicle replicator, so... That's a great call. Unlike Voyager, when shuttles get explode, I'm not like heartbroken to see the runaway get messed up. This ship is an arcade game on free play. (laughs) That's what's going on here. Yeah. And speaking of the players in that game, Holloway is like talking to herself. She seems fairly sentient in a Doc Holiday kind of way from Star Trek Voyager. And what's unusual about this scene is that she seems to be making decisions of her own volition without running them past anyone, and then also hypothesizing about what the real person that her hologram is based on (laughs) might do in a situation like this. The metaphysics of this are mind-boggling, but uh, yeah, basically she is a program running on the computer who is like fighting against the computer because the computer is locking her out of the essential system. She can only Mm -hmm. use like secondary non-essential systems to try and solve the problem of the creeping plant life that is trying to consume the ship. The vibe here is very end of Star Trek V, I thought, right? Like last episode, I found very frightening because the planet had a personality and it was letting our crew know what it was trying to do and then it was doing it and then it was telling them what the planet had done. And in this case, it's like after Kirk kills God on the planet surface, like the volcanic eruption happens. And that's sort of what's happening here. It's just creeping vines the entire episode. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Zero is the one that says something about, you know, the planet has gone to more of a belligerent footing with Mm -hmm. us. It's not trying to trick us into wanting to stay. It's just going to try and grab us and kill us. But uh, yeah. They start their march home, sort of a hall of mirrors effect where they'll be trudging in one direction and the point that they've been walking towards switches around on the horizon and now it's in the opposite direction. Lots of switcheroos and lots of uh, sniping between Gwyn and Dal. I like the part where they find the Klingon ship. Like I would have expected more crashed ships on the surface of this planet to explore. And so they sort of bail into this thing, have a campfire gach dinner together where they get a chance to do the sort of like Jaws dinner of, boy, what did the planet make you see and experience? And they just all sort of share what their fears were, which is a very intimate thing to do for a group of friends that are new to each other. Like, hey, what did the planet show you as your deepest fear ever? (laughs) Yeah, I remember the first time you and I hung out, we uh, we were hanging out in a bar with a bunch of people after a live podcast, and that was kind of the first thing we just jumped in on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was the first thing our first show audience members asked us. That's why we don't do Q&As anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they're like taking shelter in this Klingon ship overnight, which is a Klingon ship that really got far afield of the Klingon Empire. 
but uh, I I loved seeing the like like it was very like LV four two six looking the way it was crashed on the surface. I would have loved to have known what the fears were that took out this Klingon crew. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it's like, is this your idea of sex type of imagery <laughs> there? And maybe that's why we didn't see any of it on this children's show. Worf, is this your idea of sex? This is sex. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. When Gwyn finds Dal here, they seem no longer upset at each other. Yeah, I was kind of amazed at how quickly the hatchet seemed to get buried and the beef seemed to get squashed over the course of this episode. Like, it didn't seem like they did a ton of work on that. No, and I mean, it's sort of code for romance. Two people looking up at the stars, talking in soft voices. I mean, it definitely felt that way to me. Yeah, yeah. Constipation is what we'll both have after eating Jankum stew. (laughs) Anyways, they keep trudging and they get attacked by a giant monster that looks like the thing that Zero found in the last episode, but with Mm -hmm. spider legs. Yeah. And I guess also by extension, the mystery thing in the engine room in the Protostar. Right. But, uh, you know, it's trying to stomp them. Gwen saves the day by uh, making fire with her phaser and uh, throwing the torch at this thing and it catches on fire. Unclear if the Diviner and Dreadnought are impervious to fire because they are two other obstacles that have just made planet fall. Yeah, it struck me like the moment the Diviner showed up, like, oh, this planet, as we've established, like finds out what you want the most and then tricks you with it. Like that's for sure what will happen with the Diviner. Like he might be the most at risk of being on this planet of anyone. Yeah, I thought the same thing. His, his identity is entirely built around wanting the protostar. Right. And I mean, turns out that's exactly what happens toward the end to him. Yeah. We get a little excitement with Dreadnought chasing them and Dal, who had like momentarily made peace with Gwen, feeling betrayed anew that she called Dreadnought and uh, the Diviner to come and get them. And I wondered for a minute if this was actually Dreadnought or if this was a, another ploy by the planet. This is like a switcheroo that I'm expecting at every turn on this planet, but it's actually Dreadnought. And if you're confused, like an eight-year-old is going to be incredibly confused, right? Or maybe not. Maybe yeah. eight-year-olds are smarter than you. Most are. Yeah. <laughs> I, too, was very excited to see the Diviner on the planet surface just to get a sense for what would make him tick. It was not a surprise at all that it was the image of the protostar that did it for him, and it puts him in a situation where he's got to choose between saving his daughter, who is just being suffocated by a bunch of vines, and his beloved ship, which is also sort of being suffocated by vines, or at least starting to be, and unsurprisingly, the Diviner chooses the ship, and this this just breaks Gwyn's heart. Yeah. I mean, not to belabor our review of episode five of Prodigy that much, but like she had gotten her sword back together and cut herself free of the Mm -hmm. vines, and then she finds herself right behind the Diviner in a different place in the same predicament where she's getting consumed by vines. Are you suggesting that maybe this wasn't Gwyn? Again, I was trying to like see where the script was head faking and it was actually Gwen and I was like so wait a minute how did she get there yeah I don't know 
And why was why was she so like I know her ankle is broken, but it's not like she wasn't able to get away from those other vines. So why are these ones such a huge problem? I don't know. I don't know. But it takes a rescue mission by Dal, like rappelling down a rope with one arm extended in order to save her from this situation. Yeah. Last chapter out of Saigon. And mm-hmm. uh, Gwen has saved the Dal. Dal has saved the Gwen. Screenwriting math has been fulfilled. We've reduced our character fractions. Yeah. And uh, the Diviner is now marooned on this evil planet. And they get out of there, and he doesn't chase them. No. <laughs> no, because we need 15 more episodes of chasing. <laughs> now, come on, man, he does. And they uh, and they whip out the secret uh, special star drive situation that they have on uh, the protostar. I called this. I called this on, like, episode one. I don't know if you should be that proud of this. This was the least well-kept secret of the show. What did you predict it was going to be? Like a you you just had a joke prediction. I had a real prediction. <laughs> yeah, they flipped the switch on the protostar drive, a drive powered by a protostar, hence the name. Yeah. And they leave the diviner in the dust. They go to plaid. Yeah. They go so fast, so far that they aren't even on the diviner's radar. They break the warp 10 barrier, and the next scene is that they're all salamanders getting it on in some bog planet somewhere. Yeah. Very surprising end to this thing. (laughs) Very satisfying end, if you ask me. A good way to get to our first of many mid-season breaks, I would say. Yeah. But did you like this episode of Star Trek Prodigy, Adam? I mean, it's always going to be graded on that kind of kid show curve, right? Like the story here is that Gwyn loses her quote unquote father and is now independent of him going forward. Whatever happened up to that moment of decision, I mean, it's just a chase scene through vines for (laughs) for 18 minutes until we get to that moment of truth. So yeah, I mean- For what it is, it's doing fine. It was very dark. Like the last episode was so beautiful in so many areas, like especially with that planetary reentry and stuff. Most of the time they're trudging around the darkness in this episode and it was less beautiful than the last in a fairly striking way. And in that way, maybe like if an adult is watching this for beauty and for jokes, like uh, (laughs) maybe a lesser prodigy episode than the rest, which I think we're just stronger in both areas. What about you? Yeah, I mean, there was a few things that bugged me about this episode. I talked about the continuity with Gwen at the end. I am glad that they are not stretching the taffy of Gwen and Dal hate each other's guts much longer. And I'm glad that the seat that Gwen sits in when they get back to the bridge is the captain's seat. And she's the one that knows how to push the right buttons to get them out of there. Right. I think that bodes well for this as a show. But yeah, like I was also bothered... Like when they're at warp, that looked like hyperspace in Star Wars, not warp in Star Trek. Like warp in Star Trek has a look and this is not it. I mean, it's Abrams warp. Just don't like that. No more Abrams shit. Yeah. (laughs) Streaky Starfield is just a classic look. And maybe that's just for people of our age and not for the kiddos. I wonder if this is taking place in the Kelvin timeline. I mean, if a visual language is giving us the answer to that question, you might assume that. Yeah, maybe so. 
anyways, probably not my favorite episode of Prodigy, but um, yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm glad that the show's out there and uh, and trying Trek from a new angle. Yeah, and it's a good place to stop. You know, I mean, it sort of resets the show back to a state where they're being chased by Gwen's father again, and that will be where we catch it. Hey, Adam. What's that, Ben? Did you find yourself an Edward Larkin? Well, I didn't think we were doing that. I didn't think we were gonna we were gonna do the whole show during the Marin. <laughs> you am become Edward Larkin. <laughs> I know. I mean, the moment that the diviner chooses the ship over his daughter would be kind of an Edward Larkin moment to me. So I think in the absence of any other strong Larkin candidates, the diviner is going to be mine. What about you? I'm going to give it to Rock Talk this episode. In the scene when they are in the Klingon wreck hanging out, there's a moment where Rock Talk catches the reflection in a mirror. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought about you and how much you hate Rock Talk's mouth. Ugh, yeah. <laughs> so gross. There's a lot of Rock Talk snuggling with Murph. And uh, God, I, if I'm Murph, I just do not want to be that close to Rock Talk's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> under any circumstances yeah it's well, gross as hell do you want to get into the next thing we're here to talk about adam yeah i think that's what everyone is ready for ben they're sick of us stalling i love a season premiere and season four of star trek discovery is here after a great big break let's see what is on the docket for the crew of the discovery in season four episode one Kobayashi Maru. I had some questions before this season started. Questions like, is Sukal still dangerous if he's not on the dilithium planet? Right. Is this season, based on its cold open, just a dilithium milk run season? <laughs> I thought this, this cold open made the case that that could be a pretty fun through line to the whole thing. Yeah. But ultimately... The biggest question I had that was unanswered here and not even referred to ever, Ben, is are we still trying to get home if we're the Discovery crew? No, I think that they said specifically they can never go home because of the sphere data. (sighs) I don't like ignoring the interest in that. I don't like that that is settled law here for these characters. (laughs) I guess in the absence of caring about wanting to get home, what do you think we care about the most right now if we're this crew? Rebuilding the Federation? Is that it? Yeah, I think uh, building some normalcy back into the galaxy, making it a nice place to hang if this is where we've got to hang around. Well, I'm going to keep returning to that last question as the season goes on because I am going to wonder... (laughs) It's uh, watch the end of season two. It's settled in the end of season two. I I was unsatisfied with that settlement. If, <laughs> if that's the case, all right. Well, uh, this season opens on one such dilithium milk run. They go down to Planet Lunestra commercial on Book's shuttle to drop off a gift of dilithium for some moth people. These pale guys just aren't interested in getting bribed into being friends. I think what they could use more than dilithium is maybe a little bit of lubriderm. <laughs> <laughs> Things are pretty ashy down there on the Al Shang planet. 
get away from the uh, the sleep aids aisle at the pharmacy and get over to the uh, medicated ointments aisle. I really love the attitudes from these guys. Yeah. Right up top. It's not going to be easy. It's really Planet Pranica. <laughs> Why do you want to be on. nice? I don't buy it. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it kind of is. They are suspicious from jump. And why shouldn't they be? They have every reason not to trust the Federation as the source of the burn. Yeah. I would never be good at being the like head of state for a country because like old enmity between us and another country is not something that like I can ever wrap my mind around. Like when, you know, one country is like cranky about something that another country did in the Hundred Years' War or something. I'm like, who cares? Like yeah. You weren't there. Nobody alive was there. I have enough of my own grudges without needing generational grudges. Yeah, right. Inheriting your grandfather's grudges. Yeah, I don't need that. Speaking of grudge, grudge is getting Book and Michael Burnham in a lot of trouble with these people. Yeah. Well, they know what a cat would do if it saw a moth. It would do yeah. one of these. <laughs> yeah. It would swat at it. These Al Shang turn into like the henchmen from Venture Brothers. They start flapping wings made out of little tinier moths. And it turns out they're pro-monarchy assholes. Ben? When Grudge's status as queen is divulged, they take great umbrage with this. And it's a run and shoot where uh, Michael Burnham and Book are running away as fast as they can. And the Al Shane are kind of chaotically swooping through the air trying to lick shots at them and uh, they're not doing so great. <laughs> this is something that Michael Burnham comments on a couple times like these guys are like stormtrooper level accuracy with these shots. What's going on? <laughs> What's going on is they depend on the satellites in orbit to help them with their aiming for yeah. some reason and Burnham's idea is to get these satellites working again as a peace <laughs> offering. That is a monumentally shitty idea. That is like the show of good faith to end all shows of good faith. Right. <laughs> hey, it looks like your guillotine isn't sliding too smoothly. How about I uh, get up in there with some grease and... A uh, little lubricant in there. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals. And they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Top of the morning to you. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in Below the Kilt Care. 
I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality, and this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing, and wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org slash newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. You know, the last season premiere we had was just Michael by herself and feeling very disconnected from the ship. And when mm -hmm. she radioed up to the disco and we started bopping around the ship and checking in with all our friends from the bridge. I thought they did a really nice job with that. And it really reminded me how much I enjoy being around this crew. I was wondering who was in command while they were on the surface. And it looks like it's Reese. Reese yeah. is in the chair. Good for him. All we ever know about Reese is that he's like uh, doing mixed martial arts in the ship's gym. Maybe this will <laughs> be the season of the Reese. Yeah. It seems like it may not be the season of the Bryce, right? Like there's another guy at Bryce's yeah. station and Bryce is there saying something about like, yeah, I'm consulting in, on another ship. <laughs> That's how they write him off of the show. Yeah. He got a consultancy job. That's not fun. Yeah. That's weak as hell. You want to be killed off of a show like this, right? You die to get killed off of a show like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tall and Stamets are getting along smashingly over their shared love of being huge nerds. <laughs> and together the crew works to fix the satellites. The moth people's aim gets a lot better. And right at the moment where Burnham and Book steps off of a cliff onto Book's cloaked ship 
and uh, the collected Al Shang watch as Book pets his cat from the safety of the interior. And then we get our classic, the guy who was just trying to kill them radios up to apologize. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a, a thing that happened a few times in season three that uh, I felt like if I'm reading this right, they're trying to make the case that like, this is not going to be the way in season four. It's almost like they're putting that dynamic to bed that the show is just about the disco going around, getting in mm -hmm. a misunderstanding and then having the people that tried to kill them apologize. I mean, it's not always possible to be nice enough to fix a relationship though, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know what the big takeaway here is, but like the show is suggesting that you can just give enough to fix <laughs> Something that's broken. Enough like briefcases full of manicured money can be beamed down to make all be well. Speaking of things being well that didn't used to be, on Kaminar, the legislative chamber includes the Ba'ul. There's like yeah. tanks of them in there and they're having a big meeting about whether or not to engage with the Federation. The leadership role for Great Elder Saru really fits his dog dick fingers like a glove because like his brand of condescending pontification is perfect. He's so insufferable in all of his scenes. I wish it wasn't like this for him because I really like Doug Jones. Yeah. Do you think that the Ba'ul also call him great elder or is that something only Kelpians call him? I don't know. Yeah. I wanted more Ba'ul in this scene. I'll tell you that much. The only thing grosser than Saru's fingers they do seem to kind of make themselves scarce when Saru starts pontificating. <laughs> yeah, that's a good time to leave. He's like explaining basic astronomy to them. He's like, we're on a planet and a planet is in a solar system and a solar system is part of the galaxy, which in turn is part of the universe. <laughs> yeah, you remember when generations ago the Ba'ul like had mastered space flight and would come down and kill a bunch of Kelpians whenever they wanted? <laughs> yeah, I think they're pretty clear on how the galaxy works. Yeah, it seems like he is kind of advocating for some sort of political leadership on Kaminar where he would cause them to reconnect with the rest of the galaxy or become more integrated with the Federation or something. But it, it's not going to be an easy sell. Speaking of that same Federation and Starfleet... Back on the disco, there is discussion of Starfleet Academy reopening. And Book is on his way back to Quajon for a family member's bar mitzvah or something. And Ben, is that Tribble a crew member on the floor? <laughs> oh, How many bibs did that Tribble have? I couldn't see. <laughs> I don't know. I could have used 20 more minutes on this Tribble. I was very curious. I mean, like, you'd like to see, you know, more infinite kinds of combinations is that someone's lunch like is it a pre-shaved tribble uh -huh. that got out of the lunch line if it's a crew member like michael burnham almost kicked it across the hallway because she didn't see it down there yeah you gotta be really careful if that's a member of your crew yeah yeah i want to know everything about this little guy and only one of them uh yeah are you expecting me to <laughs> believe that it's even possible for there to be one Tribble in a certain place at a certain time? Is this the pre-modified kind of Tribble? 
like from before Edward Larkin got his hands on them? Is that what's going on here? Are you saying that there's a kind of Bob Barker style spay and neuter triple program here <laughs> that keeps them safely underpopulated whenever they're on a ship? Well, you just you 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 bring very little quadrotriticale on board, and yeah. that's how you keep it under control. Yeah, yeah. This is a funny scene followed by a very earnest scene, Ben, because. Michael Burnham speechifies the first incoming class to Starfleet Academy. There are 18 new cadets for this inaugural reopening class. I mean, we point out to the space dock where new ships are being built. You're going to need more than 18, right? (laughs) Where did the officers that are in current Starfleet come from if they haven't had this since the burn? They're going to need more because no one has flown a starship on any what we would consider Star Trek missions for a very long time. Yeah. I think they basically all immediately get internships on the disco, right? Because it's the only ship that's doing this stuff. (laughs) This is a show that loves giving Sonequa Martin-Green a page of dialogue to speechify. But I think, I mean, this goes back season after season I think you deaden the power of her by giving her these speeches as often as you do. Like what made Picard and Cisco's speechifications so powerful when they happened was how relatively rare they were. There's less than a handful of really great Cisco and Picard speeches in their Star Trek series. And what made those moments shine was that like you got the chills because holy shit, It's happening. It's happening. And it happens every episode now. Do you think it's like a concentration problem where like in that era of television, you'd get 26 episodes a season. And if you got two really big, grandiloquent speeches from the captain in that 26 episodes, they would feel remarkable. And like now, if you have two, it's like there's two out of 13 episodes and it's just like, all right, (laughs) relax. I mean, I wasn't expecting it to be a modern television issue versus a how we're writing this specific character issue, but it might just be like that. I don't know. I mean, those speeches are comparatively rare, but they also loom so large that it could also just be like a thinking back on old Trek, like what are the things about it? Okay, you beam down, you go on away mission, there's a triple, there's a corny joke. And there's speeches from the captain. I'm kind of burned out on this. Like, I don't feel the chills anymore when Burnham does this. Now, whenever she starts to do a speech, I've got to, like, tie a belt around my neck and, like, (laughs) maybe put a plastic bag around my head to feel anything. If you're going to do it that way, Adam, I want you to do it under supervision because that can be quite a dangerous way to take down a Star Trek speech. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, this is also a bang, bang, bang of speeches because we just got a Saru one, we get a Burnham one, and now we're getting a President Lara Rillick speech. And yeah. uh, this is the newly elected president of the Federation who appears to be Bajoran and Cardassian. Whatever happened to the last president? We hardly knew her. Yeah. Assassinated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why'd they skip over that? <laughs> that would seem to be pretty important. We get a Tilly scene here, like the speeches end. There's sort of a post 
gathering hang yeah. happening until he's just like standing by yourself like it's a massive multiplayer online game and her character's just waiting to be interacted with. Yeah. She's like, did you get a load of that space dock they just unveiled? I mean, that seemed like pretty major and yet it doesn't <laughs> play a role in this episode aside from getting unveiled. I wonder if that'll come back. I mean, I've been promoted and I can only assume it's because they need lieutenants out on all of those ships. <laughs> Did you see those cadets? Yeah. Oh my God. They're green as hell. And I'm not just talking because they're green aliens. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, they do a couple of bits about how confusing it is to live in a uh, space-time shenanigan lifestyle. I mean, like, I felt really shamed as a person who's very stressed out right now, and I don't have space-time shenanigans to deal with. Yeah, I mean, they talk about being stressed, and then Top Gun law means that any sort of pseudo-military gathering that's kind of a party context must be broken up by a breaking news-style mission that they need to <laughs> rush out for. Yeah. And that's what happens here. There's a distress call from some dude on a station whose message gets cut off, which you absolutely need to do to build the tension. Michael Burnham has to go up to Admiral. You can't precisely smell his cologne, but the room just feels classier when he's in it. <laughs> and uh, he sends her on this mission to go help this station and all its occupants. And President Lara Rillick is standing in the room for this and says, I'm going with you. It's an awkward moment. It kind of mimics the like buddy cop moment when it's like, the two of you are together on this case and they like look at each other askance. Yeah. And even once the president leaves the room, Admiral actor in a commercial for generic testosterone pills and Michael Burnham sort of like conspiratorially are like, yeah, kind of sucks. Right. But what can you do? She's the president. <laughs> yeah. She can just announce what ship she's going to be on. There are a lot of moments in this episode that are like the end of this scene, which is like very sweet Michael telling the Admiral, God, I'm just so happy your family's finally here. Aren't you happy? And the Admiral's like, yeah, I'm happy. I'm finally happy. Everyone's happy. The discovery of the dilithium planet has really made a big difference for this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Is that like his granddaughter? Gotta be. Or did he have kids like super late in life? I don't know. He Maybe he's an old dad. Is that what you're saying? Maybe he's an old dad. Maybe he's Admiral Old Dad. <laughs> old dads are super cool. You know this guy's <laughs> making up for lost time. If I ever wind up as a dad, I'm going to be an old dad. So <laughs> It's guaranteed, Ben. <laughs> so on the disco, uh, Burnham suggests a grab handle for the president. This is like when you get on the airport tram and you don't think you have to hold on to the pole. You almost every time need to hold on to the pole on the airport tram. So many Starfleet ships have a couple of chairs that flank the captain's chair mm -hmm. for a first officer or for a counselor Troy to sit in. Yeah. The president is on board the ship and there's nowhere for her to sit. <laughs> like She just has to kind of like awkwardly stand in the middle of the room. Yeah. I felt like very awkward about this. I feel like the, the bridge needs a little bit of a redesign now that it's the Discovery A. I think you're meant to feel awkward the entire time. And just the idea of her standing there and not sitting is a big, big reason why. Michael Burnham is very suspicious of the president's motivations in coming. She thinks it's kind of a like go into 
a combat hot zone for political cred play. Adeline, she's trying to prove herself. She wants to say she's seen action. I think she's taking off a box. I kind of wished the president had like an entourage to kind of sell the politicsness of her as a character. Because when it's just coming from Michael Burnham, it seems like a projection and it seems a little paranoid in a yeah. way. Yeah, I get that. That may be intentional because yeah. it sort of is. But yeah, in, initially she uh, is is wildly suspicious of the president being there. A little bit of a uh, disappointment also that the president doesn't boot when they do their spore jump, right? I mean, that she remains stoic at the end of it is kind of a power move, right? Yeah. I was like, oh, is the president like a robot? Is she yeah. a special alien that's already like conversant in spore travel? Are we meant to understand something about the president or is this setting something up about the president? Because if so, like that's also interesting. She's got Burnham a little off center. And speaking of being a little off balance, that station <laughs> bin is spinning wildly. It looks like the inside has just got to be coated in barf. Yeah. <laughs> barf against every wall, floor, and ceiling. Yeah. Ugh. All the people started getting sick and throwing up all over each other. I never felt so bad in my entire life. But we're not going to solve that immediately. We've got to go to the bar mitzvah on Quajan, where uh, Book and Kahim and Kahim's son are getting ready to do this right. I think this is the same child actor that played Kahim's son in season three. How about that? It seemed like a very young kid to be going through a like rite of passage style religious ceremony, didn't you think? Yeah, especially one that's clearly like syrup based. <laughs> They're like, today you are becoming a man. And he's like, <laughs> today you will learn about the different grades of syrup. I'm not some boo bottle. Now, most people think that grade A syrup would be the best, <laughs> but that's actually a misnomer. And he's like, actually, I'm from Canada and we don't have the same <laughs> system here. I don't know yeah. what you mean. <laughs> so they fill up his locket full of sap and some blood. You know how it is at these religious ceremonies. Mm -hmm. Just uh, they put it in a locket around his neck. And when this kid runs away in slow motion, Ben, I feel like this is a visual language for trouble. And face <laughs> off taught fucked. me this, right? <laughs> like when kids run in slow motion and face off, they are in great danger. And that is how I felt here. That yeah. kid starts running in slow-mo, and then we hear those native birds start squawking, and I'm feeling a lot of distress for this little yeah. nephew. Something has uh, upset the local fauna on Quajon. It almost seems like some sort of inciting incident might be happening here <laughs> at the beginning of season four. <laughs> yeah. I really love how they've got to like match the ship's attitude to the station in order to beam a rescue crew over there. That's fun. Yeah. There was a scene like that in um, that Christopher Nolan time mm -hmm. travel movie. What the fuck yeah. was that called? Interstellar. Interstellar. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was very similar to that. They don't have comms initially with Commander Nalis on board the station. So they like replay his earlier message and they see that there's some like weird spatial distortion outside the window behind him. So they're starting to kind of like do the job of like figuring out what caused the station to go into its tumble also. Mm -hmm. 
seems like Detmer's confidence is all the way back because when they like need to match attitudes, she is not shaken. She is not shattered in the way that she spent a lot of the last season feeling. She and Owo are very Statler and Waldorf up there at their stations. Yeah. Just basically at all times, they just do their own thing. Match's attitude. I guess we could be piss poor. (laughs) (laughs) The decision is made to beam Adira and Tilly over to the station to help Nellis out over there. And Adira is feeling some feelings about this being their first away mission. But this is bullshit, Ben. Adira's first away mission was boarding the Discovery when Disco first pulled up to Federation HQ, right? When Adira was like a Federation TSA agent. I don't remember Adira being this nervous of a character. I think this is a retcon. Yeah. They get like a little like, you know, vote of confidence from Gray, who is in this one scene to announce what their character wants out of this season and then goes away for the rest of the episode, which is... I want a body. <laughs> where is Gray going to get a body is going to be a question on my mind. Where, where are we going to find a body that no one else is using? Are you suggesting that Gray would settle for a Rutherford style giant body? Yeah, I think uh, I'd uh, take one of those giant bodies. <laughs> I'd like big. to get real big. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great. Like Adira's like, yeah, you know, I'm really happy you're corporeal and everything now, but I don't I don't remember you like this. <laughs> I kind of miss the old gray. <laughs> Not the uh, stay puffed marshmallow gray. You know what? If you were giant Rutherford sized when that meteor hit our ship, I, uh, <laughs> that might have been more of a survivable situation for most people. The other day I was driving around the neighborhood with my wife. She's like such a sweetheart that has like so little interest in nerd culture. Mm -hmm. We drove by this house that had a big Halloween display out, including a Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man inflatable that was like eight feet tall on their roof. And she goes, look at these guys. They're already ready for Christmas. (laughs) She's the best. (laughs) Uh, she just totally innocently interpreted that as a snowman. Look at that! Look at that marshmallow guy. He looks like he's a little sailor. <laughs> he's in the he's in the navy. Uh, melts my heart. <laughs> we get a very unusual montage of the work being done on the station. We cut back and forth like four or five or six times, and all of the shots seem to show basically the same thing. It I guess was just kind of there to indicate a long amount of time passing because when they are finishing up the work it's like okay cool we just need to do this and this and that'll take another 45 and then we're done right and it's like great this is going swimmingly the work gets done in such a way that it distracts everyone from the frozen pissicles coming at both the station and the ship (laughs) these are uh frozen methane snowballs and lots of them, and not snowballs. Like these are ice crystals, basically, and they are damaging both the ship and the station. Yeah, the bangers are coming fast and thick, and the disco has to throw its shields up around both the station and the ship, which is a huge power draw. So they're not going to be able to sustain it for long. 
And pretty quickly, it becomes clear that the station is not going to be salvageable now that this is going down. And all of that work was for naught. There is so much fire in the pyro on the bridge here. I know. (laughs) And by that, I mean, you know, there's a predictable amount of fire and spark damage when bangers are dropped on a Federation starship. But it seems like this bridge set has been retooled so that there are jets of fire yeah. shooting out of areas in a pretty different way. Like I feel like this is such a a visual language of Star Trek thing that it would be hard to sell moving away from it. Mm-hmm. And they won't and haven't. But yeah. like in the refitting the ship with programmable matter era of disco, I feel like they could have made the case for not having girders that fall from the ceiling and like rocks and sparks and fire whenever they get damaged. Yeah. Like they could have gone in a like, oh, like the hull turns into like particle effects or something like that. But uh, they didn't do that. They went more fire. (laughs) Fire. (laughs) They need to rescue the crew from the station. And what is making this difficult is that their little lifeboat is stuck. They can't break it free from the hull. In order to do that, they need to send over a crew person in an EV suit. And the best one on the entire Discovery crew is Michael Burnham. So she like basically wheels around and heads for that EV suit, but not before being questioned by the president. I've logged more advanced EV hours than anyone else on board. That makes me the safest and the most logical choice. Does it? The president does not like the idea of the captain just like leaving the bridge in the middle of the emergency. And at this point I was up off the couch going, four more years, four more years. (laughs) I thought maybe a a good question for the president here might be, who is in command of the ship when you leave? Because Burnham was ready to leave without selecting that person. Does Reese just know that when Burnham leaves, it's his chair? I guess so. Later on, it's Reese back in that chair. Yeah, it must just be a chain of command thing. I, I like the pomp and circumstance of, Reese, you have the bridge, though. Yeah. Yeah, that like, always feels Reese, good. take the con. Yeah. I'm going down to a worker bee. It does not seem as though Burnham has convinced the president of her reasons why, but she just goes and does it anyway. She gets in the EV suit and she flies. Back in the Baul slash Kelpian congressional halls. <laughs> Saru and Sukal have a quiet moment, just the two of them, now that the C-SPAN cameras have been turned off. This seems to be Sukal sort of making the case that Saru should not take it upon himself to completely restructure Kaminar society and open it up to the broader galaxy, but instead go back to his Starfleet friends. I might have just been projecting here, but it felt like Sukal was like, dude, I don't need a dad, and I don't need that dad to be you. If it would make you happy to go be on the disco, do that. I'm going to be fine here. But that's not really the angle that Sukal takes in this scene. Sukal almost acts as sounding board for Saru here in a way that is very impersonal. Like impersonal to matters having to do with Sukal. Like I wish his reason for encouraging Saru had to do more with Sukal's own interests. But I don't really know what Sukal wants here or in any other scene. The scene stuck in my craw because I felt like it was 
like so much of seasons two and three felt like they were kind of trying to write some puzzling wrongs that happened mm-hmm. in season one that made it tricky to have disco exist within the continuity of the rest of Star Trek. Yeah. And I thought that like generally speaking, they found admirable solutions, but they ended season three with the idea that they wanted Michael Burnham to be the captain and Saru not to be. And this just feels like, yeah, but we'd still want Saru to be on the show. So we need to like write him back onto the ship. And it, kind of came across as arbitrary from that standpoint. It's not the actor who plays Sakal's fault, but I just don't find Sakal interesting anymore after his rescue. Like, cool, he's returned to Kaminar. Like, that's a good outcome for that character. I don't know what's next for him, and I don't necessarily care. I, I'm not. Yeah, like to it could have been any point. Kelpian saying this stuff, right? Yeah, that is what. I'm, why is it Sukal? Is a great question. Yeah, Bill Irwin is like an amazing actor, and like yeah. they could be, you know, setting the table for Sukal to have another storyline in season four. I don't know, but make it personal. Yeah, they're so good at making it personal in, in every other aspect of the show. I'll get it. So Michael Burnham is in the process of saving the day when uh, her worker bee gets hit by another one of these chunks of ice. We get some really amazing like thousand frame per second slow-mo of her hair flying around as this ship tumbles before, you know, her head is wrapped back up in a programmable matter spacesuit. She does the rest of the job with her hands. And she gets them out of there, but the escape pod is not big enough for everybody that's on the station to go all at once. So Adira and Tilly and Commander Nallis, no relation to Lee Nallis, by the way, (laughs) uh, stay behind. And the escape pod heads back. I do want to call out one thing before we leave the interiors of this station. I loved the way they did the upside down camera work in this. Yeah. Like, This is a show that has done a lot of unjustified upside down camera work. And this was like really well justified within the story and like did a great job of making these scenes feel uneasy and weird. And I thought it was really nice. The sparks really are a nice finishing touch to these establishing shots every time we're in that station where the sparks are moving. Yeah, yeah. To help emphasize the upside downness of it all. It's really great. The conflict on the station at this point is whether or not Nalus can move the remaining crew people through a compartment that is without life support, right? Right. And Tilly takes great umbrage with this, as anyone would, viewing it as a kind of suicide mission, entering a compartment without life support. And so sure Nellis is in his conviction that he pulls out a phaser in order to encourage everyone to follow his lead. He's waving a gun around like a fucking maniac when the president radios him up and President Relic really politicians him. It felt like a hostage negotiation. Yeah, like she uses some kind of specifics about the planet that he's from. She's like, you've got that great fissure on your planet. Everybody loves getting down into a fissure. I'm sure you'd like to get back there. Nice wet fissure to receive you. So you've got a lot to look forward to, man. Maybe put down the gun. (laughs) Yeah. Don't you want to go back to the fissure? I mean, I've seen the tourism poster for the fissure. It's beautiful. (laughs) It's breathtaking, isn't it? 
the way the steam explodes straight out, condensing into that iridescent mist. There's nothing else like it in the cosmos. My favorite part of the fissure is the adults only part of the fissure, you know, <laughs> with the all-inclusive uh, food and beverage options yeah. there. Yeah. Pretty nice. Coincidentally, Burnham's mission is successful and the people on the station begin the evacuation process without having to risk their lives by going through a compartment without air in it. Yeah, so that's nice. Yeah. Burnham makes it back to the bridge looking like completely buttoned up and none the worse for wear, despite the fact that she was just exposed to hard vacuum like five minutes ago. So buttoned up, she is also suspicious of the president here and takes a moment to just ask the president how she knew all that stuff about the fissure (laughs) (laughs) and whether or not she had been lying to Nallis. Yeah. And the president's like, I'm actually kind of a fissure nerd. I know a lot about a lot of fissures. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I have posters of different fissures in my apartment. What's so weird about this moment is that the danger isn't over. Like we're on a clock here and that clock goes something like, can we get the last remaining lifeboat back to the ship before the power that we need to run the shields runs out? And the answer is no. They are not going to have shields by the time this lifeboat reaches them. And this is the inflection point for Michael Burnham, right? This is needs of the many, needs of the few stuff. It is. But uh, we don't get to resolve that just yet. We get a shot of Book's ship piloting around in the atmosphere of Quajan. He finds those birds and they seem to all be like just dead and falling out of the sky when he finds them. Which is a pretty grim image. What's grimmer still is the streaks of bird blood that dot his view screen <laughs> as he flies through them. Yeah, Kahim is saying, like, come home, like, you're wasting your time, like, I'm sure it's nothing. Books like, uh, my engine's flamed out, I'm gonna have to ditch in the Hudson. And Kahim's like, you're no Sully, come on. <laughs> and, yeah. And Book is like, no, seriously, I, I might have to ditch. The moon just exploded. <laughs> This is a great effect. This is a breathtaking effect, looking up through the atmosphere and seeing what happens to this moon. Yeah. And it's uh, also a great like, stunt effect on board because Book goes flying across the room yeah. when this happens. And uh, we cut to black. The shuttle arrives on Disco, but the shields are down on Disco, and that allows one last piece of flying debris to hit him right in the shuttle bay. Ah, oh, that's gotta hurt. Looks like a very sensitive spot between those nacelles. Right up the keister of the, of the Disco. Yeah, and that's almost the exact moment that they jump away. So they get kicked in the shuttle bay, and then they jump, and when they reappear, God, debris is just everywhere, and Nellis is buried under a giant piece of debris that Culber is strong enough to single-handedly move. Like a fucking superhero. This is great. Yeah. Commander Nallis has enjoyed his last fissure, Adam. <laughs> yeah. He's covered in fissures. He <laughs> can become fissure. Yeah. Adira and Tilly are absolutely shook at yeah. this scene. A guy that just put them in great danger. They had a really fucked up relationship with him. Yeah. They've been like stressed as hell with this guy and now he's fucking dead. They're shook because they're very empathetic people. They're not shook because Nellis is dead. They're shook because there is a dead. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Also, 
shook, but in a very different way is Michael Burnham. She is uh, in her office contemplating the holographic data of the disaster they just departed. And President Rillick comes in and they have a very interesting conversation. I thought this scene was really great. They start talking about the Kobayashi Maru and the theory behind it of the no-win scenario and the way the reason Starfleet uses it to test officers as a way to make sure you are capable of living in a world where you can't control for everything. And Michael Burnham really reacts badly to the case that the president is making that she can't control for everything that that's like an actual value of starfleet did you realize that michael burnham's captaincy here was a tryout because i didn't i had no idea that her captaincy position was so tenuous well, no, it was a tryout for a different job. It was a tryout for being made captain of the Voyager, which would be testing a new propulsion system. I thought Michael Burnham being the captain of the Discovery when she was made captain was kind of a done deal. But yeah. it seems to me in this scene like the president doesn't even like her to be captain of the Discovery. Oh, I didn't get that at all. I, I, oh, okay. I, I thought it was the president saying like, I'm like looking for somebody to be the captain of this new ship. I thought it might I be see. you. Wow, the stakes for the scene were very different for me in that moment because I thought not only was she not getting that, but she was also not going to remain as captain of the Discovery. Oh, man. Wow. Well, I guess we shall find out soon enough which of us had the correct read. Kind of a lot of judgments being leveled by a person who has read a personnel file and watched one mission, though, right? And this is sort of the umbrage that Michael takes with her. Like, you don't know me. Yeah, yeah. But like... The president is there to make a personal judgment. And mm -hmm. I think between the mission and the personnel file has kind of confirmed what she suspected. And I thought it was a really like well-written scene and a really interesting meditation on one of these core concepts in Star Trek that was new from my taste. I like the scene for the conflict that it presents, but I'm not buying the president and the wisdom that she projects in this scene. I don't know where the wisdom comes from. It just seems like a job title amount of confidence for her. And I need more than that to buy that this is someone that she we should respect or fear because I feel neither for this president right now. Not your president, would you say? <laughs> yeah, I guess not. <laughs> well, she really won me over when she was mad at Michael for leaving the bridge at that one moment, so... Her dialogue is very well written, but I don't feel like her character is well written at this moment. I'm looking forward to getting to know her a little better, is what I'll say. Yeah. Because I'm not there with her yet. Book interrupts their meeting by beaming aboard and telling them his story of woe. Yeah. They rush out onto the bridge. They literally like beam from Michael Burnham's office out to the bridge. Like they, they could have walked and they I was wondering about that. Did they not walk anywhere anymore? Is no one getting their steps? They didn't learn the lessons of Spaceballs. Why didn't somebody tell me my ass was so big? They bring up Quajon on the screen. They alder and Quajon, Adam. It's just a blob of syrup out there <laughs> with like a bunch of little blobs of syrup all around. Yeah, little blobs of bird blood. In orbit. Yeah. It's gross as hell. Yeah. We get everyone's reaction before we see the planet on screen. Like every single bridge crew person 
gets the look. Yeah. And then we see the planet or what's left of it in the end. And that's the end of the episode. It's heavy duty. Yeah. Did you like this episode, Adam? This is a real table setter of an episode. And for that reason, it felt like a snack instead of a meal to me. Mm -hmm. I really love this crew and I really like the actors who play them. But this is an episode specifically in a show in general that just has lots and lots and lots of moments of people being nice to each other. And I liked it better when Stamets was more of a dick, (laughs) for example. Like, I'm okay with people being hard to work with in challenging times, and everyone is good at what they do. Everyone solves the problems that they're there to solve using their unique abilities. And it feels right now a little easy. They're setting up the season for, like, the one big problem, like the burn again. And... I hope it is not derivative of past seasons in that way. Like, I would like a little bit of different tension this time around. Like, Stamets totally cares about Adira still, which is great. Like, he should. But, like, it is unprofessional to enter a scene of trauma and ask about Adira first thing. Like, be a fucking professional, Stamets. (laughs) Like, you're in Starfleet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. The Starfleet thing really, like, is an uncomfortable fit for him as a character. (laughs) Yeah. Like, Ship of Scientists is a way that this show is encouraging us to forget that this particular crew might not be the most buttoned-up Starfleet crew we've ever been with. They're going to have different feelings about things and people. So, I don't know. I mean, that's a lot of... You had a lot of feelings. Yeah, I had a lot of feelings, and I'm not sure if I can answer the question, did I like the episode, because it's still so... Uh, there isn't a lot here quite yet, but this is a show that, that builds an entire series arc. So yeah. that's it's always a difficult question to answer, especially in a premiere episode of a new season. What about you, Ben? I really agree with you about your fears that this may be a season that feels derivative of past seasons like I'd, I'd be really scared for it to do that and i really hope they don't I, ho- I hope they find a way to tell a story that doesn't feel like a just big galaxy threatening calamity that gets resolved in the end you know and it's also calls fault <laughs> yeah that's why he's back this season <laughs> Sakal, were you just in your quarters jerking it but i have to say like aside from the saru Sukal scenes i really liked all the scenes in this episode and uh, i really loved that scene at the end with the uh, president and michael burnham i understand your misgivings about the character of the president so far but i i thought she was really interesting and i thought the case that she made was really interesting i loved the metaphor of pendulum versus wrecking ball mm-hmm. i mean it's very writerly and very like florid for a character to say something like that but yeah. i was here for it and and i think that a extremely successful politician is the kind of character you can put words like that in the mouth of fair i'd say at the end of the day it felt really fun to be back in the discovery milieu and i'm i'm glad we're watching season four so uh on balance i thought it was a good episode all right kind of a mixed review by you and me but i think that makes for an interesting start to a season 
think so too. Do you want to check if we have any interesting priority one messages in our inbox? I think we do, Ben. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Starting with a promotional message. That message goes like this. Temba has arms wide. (laughs) Trek and wars at Tanagra. Join Rebels Rebels podcast. The pod that usually explores the Star Wars universe through deep dives of TV, movies, and other media as they boldly explore Star Trek. Whoa. In this limited series, Peter, whose fandom goes both ways, chooses classic Star Trek episodes for his BFF Mike to experience for the first time in an effort to turn him to the light side of Trek. Episode one of Trek Wars drops in November as the guys watch and discuss the episode measure of a man of star trek next generation you imagine making that the first star trek the next generation episode you've ever seen pretty good start (laughs) you asked for a classic episode of star trek and there it sits that's right so we've got uh rebels rebels radio in itunes or your favorite podcast app listen and subscribe there or follow them at rebels rebels pod on instagram or twitter that's just all one word rebels rebels pod awesome adam we have another priority one message of a promotional nature here and it goes like this a while back i bought a personal p1 and spent the whole time talking about gates mcfadden's pod sorry about that i wanted to make it right by buying a promotional Love the show. (laughs) Shout out to my twin brother, Jason L. Love you. Thinking of you as you go through the life stuff you have been. Thank you to Ben and Adam for the shows. I got Twitch for you two Mm. and only you two. Mm. This old Enterprise rules. The mic at Comic-Con and the ASMR on Greatest Gen are so great, too. Wow. Hey, thanks a lot, Matt. I mean, of course we accept your apology. You didn't even have to apologize. (laughs) Yeah. If we made a joke about... You using a personal message to promote somebody else's thing. That was totally a joke. But we appreciate the promotional P1 nonetheless. And also, like many people have recommended the Gates McFadden podcast to us. And I've heard some of it. It's really good. Yeah. Gates McFadden is cool. You're not wrong, Matt L. Yeah. Well, if you'd like to get a priority one message, whether it is of an apologetic nature, a promotional nature, or a personal nature, you can get them at MaximumFun.org slash Jembotron. Get them now. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you discover yourself an Edward Larkin? I think I'm going to give it to the president just because like more than once. There was like somebody like running to do something, and she was like, "Hey, just one second before you do that." <laughs> I was like, like I thought that they were maybe setting her up for being just like a totally hateable bureaucrat, mm-hmm. and I think mm-hmm. that that's not where she winds up going. But in those moments, I was like, "Come on, lady! Like, read the room. This is touch and go right yeah, now." Yeah, like we're trying to land the plane. Now <laughs> it's not the time to talk about drink service or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, for that reason, she is my Edward Larkin. I mean, I'm not going to get another chance to do this, but Nellis is my Edward Larkin, an entirely unpredictable character (laughs) from scene to scene. I was not expecting him to pull a weapon (laughs) (laughs) the moment that he did. And uh, really fun takes by Adira and Tilly in that scene (laughs) in reaction. Yeah. They should have been like, uh, we should just like knock this guy's brain out of his body and give it to Gray. Yeah, He's not no using kidding. it well. Yeah. <laughs> He's fucking nuts. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, what is coming up on the next episode of Star Trek Discovery? Let me pull it up, Adam. It's season four, episode two, Anomaly. Saru returns to help USS Discovery uncover the mystery of an unusually destructive new force. As Burnham leads the crew, she must also find a way to help Book cope with an unimaginable loss. I mean, I didn't mean to laugh. That, that <laughs> yeah, was what the a, hell, Adam? That was a strange reaction to that to that capsule. I think <laughs> I think what I meant he's was grieving, cool. and you laugh in his face. Come on! Yeah. Uh oh. That nah. little boy just got his syrup capsule, and and then he died. Yeah. Inappropriate emotional response to that, Adam. <laughs> So that will be our episode next week right here on The Greatest Discovery. In the meantime, get a load of these credits. The Greatest Discovery is an Uxbridge Shimoda podcast on the Maximum Fun Network. This episode was edited by Ryan Whedon. Hey, that's me. Hi. The music for this show, including the music you're hearing right now, is by Adam Ragusea, who has a fantastic cooking channel on YouTube. Just search for Adam Ragusea and you're sure to find it. Make sure you do so on a full stomach, though. Otherwise, you'll just want to eat everything. If you're looking to follow the show on Twitter or Instagram, that handle is at Greatest Trek. And both of those accounts are run by Chief of the Watch, Bill Tilly. If you enjoyed the show, why not help us out by heading over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leaving a nice review. You can also help us grow the show by recommending it to someone who you think might like it. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with more of The Greatest Discovery. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.